So in August 2018, a young Swedish girl by the name of Greta Thunberg sat outside the Swedish parliament on strike from school because she believed that her government was not doing enough on the issues of climate change. Indeed, not addressing it as the crisis it was, or it is. And this small act of garnered so much media coverage and attention that from around the world that many have joined her in campaigning and striking from schools or jobs uh, to, to put forward this issue as a crisis and to say that, that we need to do more than just simply what we're doing now. And this has greatly influenced so many people and to the point where in late September uh, this year um, we saw so many people from our own nation gather together all across the nation to protest to say that we need to do something about our changing climate and to say to the government we need to do more and if we don't, things won't end up well for us. And so when it comes to climate change activism, a lot has changed in recent decades. Even when I was a kid growing up, climate change activists were far and few between. And if you met one, they were often quite unique and maybe strange people. I would hear about climate change through various organizations such as Greenpeace, but it was a very small movement. It was removed from my life. It was very out there, very small. No one really cared about it. But in 2019, a lot of people accept as their worldview that the climate is changing and we need to do something about it. It's normal now to have a keep cup, a Frank Green, a Husky cup, whatever it might be, and if you don't, if you take one of those paper takeaway cups, you're judged for doing so, and you're charged an extra 30 cents at the cafe as well. This kind of activism, though, is a little bit different. It's bred a new kind of anxiety, a new kind of fear that if we don't do something now, our future is at stake. Greta Thunberg said in a speech to the UN Council back in December that those governments and corporations who will not act to address this crisis are, and I quote, stealing their children's future right in front of their very eyes. And in January this year she said, adults keep saying we owe it to the young people to keep, to give them hope, but I don't want your hope. I don't want to be hopeful. I want you to panic. I want you to feel the fear I feel every single day. I want you to act. I want you to act as you would in a crisis. I want you to act as if the house is on fire, because it is. You might look at someone like Greta Thunberg and think she's an amazing young woman who's an incredible advocate for climate change. Or you might look at her and think she is creating unnecessary anxiety and fear which is unhelpful because these things aren't as bad as she makes them out to be. But the question I want to ask in response is how do we as Christians respond to this? It doesn't really matter what you think of Greta, whether you love her or you don't. What matters is how do we respond to this massive issue that is climate change? What story do we have to tell about the environment? Is it a better story than the one Greta is telling? What I want to do this evening is I want to look at this issue theologically. And so what I mean by that is I want to look at the issues through the lens of the story that Jesus tells in the Bible and how might that shed some light on how we should respond to this issue. I'm not going to advocate for a particular position on climate change. I'm not going to talk about the science and the evidence for or against. I'm a minister. And my job is to expound the scriptures, and that's it. 
But I do believe that the scriptures have a lot to say about our world, about its beginning, about its future, and about how we have to live in it now. And so I believe there is a better story for our world that we can tell when it comes to climate change. That doesn't leave us being apathetic towards the world and yet also is filled with a lot of hope. And so, like last week, I'll use a similar framework to approach this text in this sermon tonight. I'll look at the issue of climate change for the, the scope of creation, the fall, and redemption. And so let's dive in. In Genesis 1, we read about God creating the world. And the story of creation is a story of bringing order to chaos. We read in the very first verses of Genesis 1, the earth was formless, it had no structure, and it was void, it was empty. And so the whole narrative is, is aimed at God bringing order and structure to the world and filling it with incredible good things. And that's the one thing we should note about this creation. God keeps saying over and over again when he makes something, it is good. Seven times he repeats that refrain for the whole of that chapter. And we should notice as well that the first six occur before humanity comes on the scene. The creation is inherently good without the inclusion of humanity in it. Existing as a reflection of the goodness and the glory of God's creativity. It has value precisely because God made it. In Job... Chapter 39, God has a conversation with Job and he says, Do you know when the, mother, the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? The point being is there is so much that happens in our world that we don't see. So many amazing events within God's creation that happen that no one will ever get to witness. But just because we don't see them doesn't mean that they don't have value in their own right. God sees it because he is their maker and he sees all things. And these things occurring in our world brings him delight and joy because his creation doing what it's supposed to do. Reflecting the goodness and the glory that he made it for. And we know how amazing it is when we see it for ourselves, when we see it with our own eyes. You only need to watch planet earth by David Attenborough, to realize how incredible our world is. I mean, when I saw the trailer for Planet Earth 2 with that iguana running from the snakes, it was like watching a trailer for a blockbuster movie. It was incredible. And at one point, the iguana is like enthralled by the whole snake, but he escapes and he climbs up the rocks as the snakes try and get to him and snakes are jumping and falling. It's incredible to watch. And this is nature, this is not actors, this is not people, this is snakes and an iguana. How do we get this on camera? It's amazing. The things we see in our world, it's incredible. Our world is, is so good, so amazing. Without humanity, making it amazing. But humanity's arrival on the scene is something that is good for our world. We read in Genesis 1, verse 26, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. See, throughout the narrative, God makes things according to their kind. Birds are made according to their kind. Sea creatures according to their kind. Livestock according to their kind. But when we get to the creation of humanity, we are made after, and what we are made after is not our own kind. We are made after 
the God who made us. We are made in His likeness. And it goes on to describe what sense we are like God and called to be His image in reflection. Verse 28, God said, Bless them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. The sign that we bear God's image and likeness is that we are to be like Him. We are to rule like Him. The same care and love that He does, ensuring that the world will continue to flourish. But also, more than that, we are to subdue, or to another word to put it is to till the soil of this world. That is, we are called as human beings to use our rule to continue to create and to work and to continue the work that God did in bringing order to chaos and to make something out of what he has given us, this world, this beautiful world that he has made. The idea is is that God has given us this lump of clay which we had to make something of it, turn it into something beautiful. Recently, our unit complex had a working bee and where we, did the, we redid the front of our garden. It was overgrown and it had weeds and it looked pretty ugly and pretty gross. No one had looked after it for a very, very long time. And so we decided it's time to take care of it. It's time to do something about this. And so our whole unit complex got together and we pulled out the weeds, we pulled out the dead plants, we pulled out the really ugly plants that had overgrown and just didn't fit there anymore. And we planted new plants. And we put frangipanis in. And we put these nice little flowers in too. And to ensure the health of the soil, we put cow manure in, which is disgusting and it stinks, but apparently it's good for the soil to provide nutrients. And we stood back after that day, we had finished, and we were so proud. It looked beautiful. And every time I walk out to go to work or to just to go get coffee, I walk past the, the garden bed and I think, That's, I did that. Sick. That looks so good. What that is an example of, it's a microcosm of what we see here in Genesis 1. You see, we brought order to chaos. We demonstrated our rule and care for the creation and continued to do God's work of creating in the world that he has made. We did this by turning an old garden bed, dilapidated, forgotten, uncared for, and made something beautiful out of again. In the same way God rejoices and enjoys seeing the mountain goat give birth, we rejoice and enjoyed in the creation that we had made, reflecting God's joy himself as well as his image bearers. We see this microcosm on a massive scale with technology and medicine and buildings and cities and how things function to keep people alive and sustained and comfortable and warm. All these things show forth the, the incredible way in which God has made us to rule and to subdue, to show forth His image and His glory. You see, some climate change activists, they, they believe that human beings are the problem. They are a blight on our world and our universe and they need to be removed. And in fact, Mother Earth is responding by destroying them. But Genesis sees it differently. In our design is not to be a blight but a blessing to our world. We are made to be gardeners. 
not consumers. We're made to be gardeners, to make something of this world, to reflect the, the care and love that God has for it. The fact that we are made to be gardeners tells us that there is a particular end in mind for this world. There's a particular goal. You see, we're not in a world that's, like, that's our sandbox where we can do whatever we want to do. God has put us in the world to work it, to rule it, to bring it about a particular end. In the same way, a lump of clay doesn't just simply stay a lump of clay. Something happens to it to make it beautiful. And yet, what this will look like for us remains to be seen at this point. But what we ought to learn is that human beings, God has made us as human beings with an incredible power to impact the world for good, to impact the physical fabric of this creation for good. But when we fail to rule and work the way God intends us to, then our impact on the world has the exact opposite effect. And this inevitably what happened when sin came into the world. In the third chapter of Genesis, the Bible records the introduction of sin into the world. Mankind rebelled against God's good order and decided to rule and work in a way they saw fit. And because they did so, our relationship with one another began to break down and fracture. But not just that, our relationship with the land and the earth also began to break down. Our ability to work it became hard. Genesis 3.17 says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field by the sweat. Sorry, by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So notice that language of that ongoing struggle between man and the ground. Our relationship towards nature has become strained. It's become hard. We're in conflict now. What used to be before should have been a blessing, should have been an easy work as we partnered with the, the world and made it into something beautiful. It's now become really, really hard. We often talk about being impacted by the, by the power of sin or our world being impacted by the power of sin and the evidence of that being simply natural disasters, things out of our control. But we often forget that this is the case because our relationship with God is out of alignment and broken. These disasters are a sign of our rebellion and the broken reality of relationship with God. Rejecting God not only means rejecting uh, him or having a bad relationship with each other, but a bad relationship with the world around us as well. Hosea 4 says this, Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing and lying and murder, stealing and adultery. They break all bounds in bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of this, the land dries up and all who live in waste away. The beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and the fish in the sea are swept away. Do you see the connection? A rejection of God leads to the breakdown of relationship between humanity and each other. And to use Hosea's words, because of this, the land and the creation are swept and are wasted away. He even uses the same language in Genesis 1.26, to tie it back to creation. Beasts of the field, 
birds in the sky, fish in the sea. It was humanity's vocation to rule and care for such as these. And Hosea's point is to say that when humanity lives in rebellion against God, there is a flow-on effect here in how we treat each other, and in turn it impacts the environment in a negative way. And so because of our desire to live and to rule the way we see fit, we see a new purpose for our world rather than the one that God intended. We see the world as ours to do whatever we wish, which is why God establishes laws for how his people should interact with the land itself. As we read in Deuteronomy 20, verse 19 and 20, I'll read it again for us. When you lay siege to a city for a long time, fighting against it to capture it, do not destroy its trees by putting an axe to them, because you can eat their fruit. Do not cut them down. Are, you, are the trees people that you should besiege them? In God's mind, a tree has a greater purpose than simply to be cut down and to be used to build siege ramps in times of war. So he makes a law to ensure that his people don't abuse his creation and simply see every single tree to be used for building siege ramps, especially the ones that bear fruit. He, he equates cutting them down as besieging them as if they were people. That's how much value he sees in trees. He makes a law to protect the rights of trees. And you would think that as image bearers, as those made to rule and to care for the creation, we would get that. We would know God values trees and God values what he has made. We'd get that intuitively, but the reason why he makes that law is because we don't. Because of sin, we are prone not to care and rule well, but we are prone to abuse the land and the world that God has made us. We are prone to consuming the resources of the earth and seeing the earth as no more than a resource-producing factory. That is what this law is trying to protect against. And so God steps in and, and says, because if he doesn't step in, how far will humanity go? The Aral Sea, which lies between Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, is a prime example of not only humanity's propensity to abuse the resources of the earth that God has given us, but also to turn the creative power that God has given us to make a good impact on the world and to turn that to use it for our own good instead. The Aral Sea was once the size of Tasmania not very long ago, around 1989. But over the last couple of decades, the sea has shrunk 90% due to the extensive cotton farming which brought wealth to the Soviet Union. What's left now in that 10% is just pollution by weapons testing, fertilizer runoff, and industrial projects. And what is frightening is that the Soviets knew this would be the outcome. For them, a sea is just a sea and good for growing cotton to make your society wealthy. Now, if that doesn't concern us as Christians, then perhaps we need to revisit the scriptures and read about how much God values what he has made. That in the same way a tree doesn't simply exist to be cut down and to build siege ramps, a sea doesn't exist purely to be drained to fuel your cotton farms. 
Humanity might have abdicated its responsibility and vocation to care for our world and to rule as God intended to. But that doesn't mean that we have gotten off our thrones, so to speak. Sin hasn't stopped us from ruling, but changed the nature of our rule, and that's bad news for our environment. In fact, there are so many psalms where the psalm speaks on behalf of the world and the, and the land, and it's crying out for justice, for God to do something. We can have a negative impact because God has given us that creative power to do so. We've taken that creative power and turned it for evil or turned it for our own selfish gain. But how far can we go? That leads to the question that so many people will ask in this current cultural moment around climate change. Can we, can our negative impact be as such that we can destroy the world as we know it? That is what climate change scientists are concerned about. That's what Greta Thunberg wants us to be anxious about. That if we continue to operate in this particular way, or to use the biblical language, to rule in this particular way, we will head along trajectory where if things don't change, our world will end up as a place of disaster, as a place that we cannot live anymore. Is this the case? And if it is, what needs to happen to stop this from being so? Greta Thunberg would suggest that what needs to happen is to bring awareness to the issue and for governments and corporations to take it seriously and begin to work towards changing how they operate in this world, to recognize that our system is lent towards destroying the environment rather than caring for it. And therefore changing the system is of the highest priority. Of course, she would uh, recognize that what stops change from happening is people's self-interest being threatened. It will take sacrifice for things to change, for the system to change. She may be right, but the question is, is will it be enough? Will it be enough to bring awareness? Will it be enough to protest and educate Will it be enough to do away the underlying problem that people are selfish and want what's best for them? Ultimately, the work they're trying to achieve in this community, in this activist community, is a work of changing one's heart. Not just simply fixing the environment, but they're trying to change one's heart, one's selfish nature, or as the Bible would put it, one's sinful nature. Is that something Greta can do? If God's laws did not stop Israel from doing whatever was right in their own eyes, what's to say people will change because of being made more aware of an issue? As we saw earlier on, our failure to care for the creation and, to, and reject our vocation to rule it well and look after it flows out of a rejection of God himself, the creator, a rebellion against him, and saying, no, 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 I will rule my way, and I will do what I want, and I'll see the world the way I want to see it, as how it benefits me. This is at the root of the problem. Our relationship with God is out of alignment, and therefore so is our relationship with the world itself. We're part of the problem. And so our only hope is for something beyond us to come into our world to do something about it. And that's what God does. 
That's the hope that we turn to. In Romans 8, the world is groaning and it wants to be free from its decay and bondage. But its hope is not in people doing that for the world. It's hope in that, the, as Romans 8 puts it, the revelation of the sons of God will be revealed that God will do something about this. And we see that he does. You see, God made this world to be ruled and cared for by human beings. And by abdicating our responsibility, we're paying for the cost of neglecting our rule and care for the world. And our only hope is God's intervention. Indeed, for God himself to take up this vocation of ruling and caring where we failed to do so. But to do that, he would need to become human because he appointed humanity as its rulers and carers. And so we see to redeem us and to save the world, he comes down, God comes down as the Son, as Jesus Christ himself. Fully man, fully God. See, we read in Psalm 8 that what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. That was said about mankind long ago, about their vocation to rule and to care for the creation. But since sin came into the world, we have failed and neglected that vocation and this pool has been getting smaller and smaller and smaller. It started with the whole of humanity in Genesis, then it went to Israel as the chosen people of God and now it's been narrowed down to one man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And the writer of the Hebrews says this about him. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You see, Jesus is seen as the true man of Psalm 8, the one who was qualified to rule this world and to care for it because he is in right relationship with God himself. Where we have failed, he has succeeded. And because he is so able to reconcile this world to God in right relationship. And we read in Colossians 1 verse 19, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus' work on the cross to defeat the very power of sin means that he currently sits on the throne as this world's ruler and therefore we ought to have the greatest confidence that he will bring about this world's renewal. The promise is not that we will be saved from the earth but that we will be saved along with the earth. In fact, the image of the future is not one where we are kind of, our souls are rising up to heaven and we're leaving this earth behind. No, rather, it's a, it's a future where heaven and earth are coming together in Jesus Christ, the king of this new world. We read in Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven had, and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with him and be their God. This hope 
that we need to hold on to in the face of climate change, in the face of the environment, is that God will make this world new. He will restore all things. And there's a better story yet. He will come down and dwell with his people. Heaven and earth will be brought together. And you see, this is the original intention that we see all the way back in the garden. Adam and Eve, God together in one place. Heaven and earth meeting. There was work to be done to the world, to the garden. But it's not Adam or Eve or us who completes that work. It's Christ himself who completes that work. And we read in Revelation 22 what this kind of new heaven and new earth looks like. It looks awfully like the Garden of Eden. We have a tree of life, a river flowing through it. And so the idea is that Jesus is the one who completes the mandate set all the way back in the beginning of Genesis chapter 1. What we had there was a garden and Jesus turns this garden into a garden city. But we have the new Jerusalem, the new earth, heaven and earth coming together in Christ. And that is the hope that we have for renewal. And because of that hope, we have certain ways we can live now in the present. There's a few things I want to mention before I finish up about how we live now because of that hope in the present. Firstly, we should not be anxious. When Greta says panic, be anxious, I understand why. When you look at the world around us and you think, how is this world going to survive much longer by our impact? But as Christians, we need to look at this world through the lens of the gospel and the power of the one who is saving it and redeeming it in Christ Jesus. We need to be a non-anxious presence in this world because he will redeem it and he will save it. But, secondly, this doesn't mean that we're apathetic about this world, thinking it doesn't actually matter. Indeed, quite the opposite. We've noted that what causes these issues that we see around us is selfishness and sinfulness and greed. And yet we're Christians, those who have been born again by the Spirit of God. In Galatians 5, it says we're for freedom that Christ has set us free. We are free from our sinful nature to pursue a life with God in which we can bear the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All these things don't just have a relational impact on each other, but they will impact how we work and live in this world. We will actually be thoughtful about other people and thoughtful about the world we live in as well. And so if you are living in this world, when you think of being greedy, don't just simply think, think of the struggle of greed for certain things against what other people have, but think about how your greed might affect the world around you as well. Fast fashion, takeaway coffee cups, all these things can be signs of a life that isn't freed necessarily by the Spirit. We've got to think and reflect deeply on these such things. Because the reality is, is that we're saved to, to work with Christ. We are his co-heirs and also co-rulers. Which means that we are working with God, with Christ, for the renewal of this world. We won't bring about its full renewal. That's what Christ does when he returns. But we will be partakers and participants in his work as we live out this, in, about that work in this world today. 
as we demonstrate the kingdom that is coming, as we demonstrate the world that he values. So we need to reflect on these things deeply. What makes the, the Christian story in the face of climate change a better story is that as Christians, we value this world immensely. It is so important to God. The physical world that we are in is something that is good. He made it. But the great news is that it's not on us to redeem it and to save it. The great news is that it's on us to trust in the Lord Jesus to do that and to partner with him in his work of renewal and turning this garden into a garden city. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you love us, you care for us, you want what's best for us. And Lord, you have put us in this world to be its rulers and the and carers and so Lord we pray help us to do so to rule well to care well because of our life now by the Spirit forgive us for our sinfulness forgive us for neglecting our care for this world and how that's not just affected the world itself but how we treat each other and also how we treat you help us to see this world is yours you made it and it's good and we should take up our vocation in caring for it, in ruling it well, that we might reflect the world that is coming in Jesus Christ, the world that will be a garden city in which all will know you, who trust in you, and enjoy your presence.